This is the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. If you're suffering from analysis paralysis, can't work out who to believe, hate dealing with agents, sick of your parents telling you where you should buy, you think the market's leaving you behind, or you're just worried about making a huge mistake, then you're in the right place. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums, but it's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience to share with you. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you need to get without missing a step. This is your first home buyer guide. If you'd like to know how we can help you buy your first home and avoid a whole heap of nasty pitfalls, head on over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au, and there you'll find free checklists to download, a free mini course on how to price a property, and our where to buy tutorial for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Absolutely. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring stuff, the disclaimer. (laughs) Everything we talk about on the podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken into account your personal circumstances so it should never be considered to be personal advice we always recommend getting the advice of a professional in their field of expertise now this could be a buyer's agent a licensed financial advisor or a mortgage broker depending on your needs the content you're about to enjoy is correct at the time of recording but things are changing on a daily basis so check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information episode we're going to discuss various options you have if you can't afford to buy where you really want to live. We're going to talk about rent vesting, co-ownership and getting a guarantor for your loan. Over to Megan for the first one. Yeah it's a really interesting one isn't it because sometimes you really you know I'd love to live on Hedges Avenue on the Gold Coast. It's absolute beachfront, you know amazing houses it's just not an option for me. You know, it's, I don't have that kind of budget. And often <laughs> we don't. It doesn't matter whether you're spending $400,000 or, or $4 million. There's often compromises and sometimes location is that compromise. So if you really want to live somewhere, you've got a suburb in mind, you really want to live somewhere, but um, you can't afford a house or, or an apartment or a townhouse in that area that you want, suburb you want to live in, then an option is to rent first, Veronica. And, and this is where you rent where you want to be, the property you want to be in, the lifestyle that you want, but you buy an investment grade property in another location and somebody else pays to rent that property from you. So, you know, I guess the the basis and and what we're going to really hammer home today is if you're going to rent vest, that other property has to be investment grade. Yes, there are pros and cons to this. But before we get into the pros and cons, you got my interest peaked because you could be a rent investor if you wanted, Megan. I mean, you could potentially rent on, is it Hedges Avenue? Yeah, um, there's not why much Why aren't you rent renting on, on Hedges Avenue? Because and, <laughs> and my buying... children go to school in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> right. There are so, other factors at play. <laughs> because you know, this rent vesting idea does scale. I have heard of people, you know, uh, living in ridiculously expensive properties that they couldn't possibly afford to buy. And, mm. you know, there's a school of thought that says that's the way to live. I personally 
my own, it might be fun for a while, but I do like to be able to hammer the nails in the wall for my own pictures. But um, yeah, and improve <laughs> things and, and customize them to your own, you know, and have that longevity because, Veronica, at the end of the day, if you're renting and that owner wants to move back into their property or they have a need to sell the property, then at the end of your lease, you're going mm. to be looking for another rental property. And, and I guess that's the, that's the thing that doesn't give permanency if you go down the rent vesting path. Perhaps one of the cons that we could add to the list of, of, pros and cons yeah um but it's also the, really good if people want to try different suburbs as well well I was about to say the flip side of that is flexibility isn't it mm. so you know the, the the pro of that is well yeah sure i get kicked out but you know i'm young i've got no kids i well i'm not anymore but was you know when i was young and had no kids <laughs> <laughs> it worked well for you well yeah because I you mean, can try absolutely. different things yeah yeah gives you flexibility so Let's sort of run through, I guess, those pros. So that is one of them that gives you the flexibility to live. And let's face it too, as someone who is not necessarily ready to settle down, which does have connotations of absolute and utter horror and boredom for many people. For some um, people. For some. <laughs> but before you settle down, then, you know, you, you're in the situation where if you're first time you're buying a property that wouldn't necessarily serve you and suit you down the track. So therefore, you know, why lock yourself into something ahead of time? So that's one pro that you don't actually lock yourself into buying a property that's not suitable for you now, might be suitable for you in the future. Yeah, particularly if you are single and there is hope for love in your future. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember your story, Veronica, where you said that you had a, a small one-bedroom apartment because that was all you could afford at the time. Mm. But but when you then partnered up, it was way too small for you and there was a great amount of cost in, in getting yourself out of that property and into a bigger one. Um, it's, a, it's a really good lesson in, in having a, a bigger, a long, longer-term look at what you might be doing, you know, five four, three years down the track because that's a short period of time to own a property. Mm. Um, one of the things that people quite are quite attracted to with rent vesting is the deductibility of the expenses in holding the investment property. So things like interest payments, body corporate or strata levies, um, rates, any other cost or expense in holding the property can fall into the tax deductible side of of the equation um now that's not a reason to own a property that's that's certainly not worth what we're suggesting at all but it is a benefit that people like um as opposed to a home where all of those costs are, are non-deductible they're just your personal costs out of your post-tax income and so what um, what Megan's talking about there, obviously, is that there's, and, and you'll hear, you might hear brokers referring to good debt and bad debt. And <laughs> they, you know, and financial planners will refer to good debt and bad debt. And good debt is debt that you get a tax deduction on and bad debt is debt you don't. Or good debt is I, debt mm. used to actually build, build wealth. You know, bad debt is stuff like credit card interest and um, personal, yeah, personal loans car loan and, and credit like cards and, and, and things for, for personal joy. Yes. <laughs> so there's the deductible debt and the non-deductible debt, right? So, I, you know, yes, sure, if you can get your interest payments on your home loan as a tax deduction, that's fantastic. However, there's a, like every cloud has its silver lining or every <laughs> knife has another side to it or every coin has another side to it. Um, the downside of that and the upside of buying a home that you live in is that you don't have to pay tax when you sell that property, whereas if you claim those deductions 
because you're renting it out and, and the rent is income too that obviously you need to offset. Um, if you claim those deductions, you then have to pay tax on some of the gain when you sell that property. So that's a definite downside. It is. And, and it's something that people don't think about. You know, sometimes people um, might buy a property with a long-term view that it's going to be an investment property, but they're going to live in it for a period of time. So um, they might access some of the, the benefits of being a first-time buyer and living in the property for 12 months. Just be really cautious there if you go down that path that you're choosing a property that is investment grade and based on the investment fundamentals rather than just focusing on that short-term period that you're going to live in it to get um, some of those owner-occupier benefits. Uh, so it might, you might, you know, some people get the best of both worlds by doing that. It's, it's something to be really cautious about. But if you turn a home that you lived in, which is capital gains tax free when you sell it, if you turn that into an investment property, then that's when the capital gains tax um, uh, period will start from the moment it becomes an investment property or somebody else starts paying you money to live in it. Now you might be glazing over in the eyes by thinking of this stuff and or you might be writing to it. And if you're writing to it like we are, sort of we, we, we need to understand this stuff because there's implications. If you don't set things up right at the outset, you will discover these things when it's too late. And this is why we would always recommend if you're going to go down the rent vesting option, you absolutely need to get a good accountant on side and one that will explain to you the tax implications and the structuring of your loan and the way in which you do you know you organize your repayments and all that sort of stuff you need to get some really good advice at the outset whether you're going to make it a, a, a investment from day one or day 367 or what, whatever at what point whatever point you're going to make that property an investment or even if you think you might make an investment at some point you want maximum flexibility but the thing to be aware of with choosing an accountant get one that really does understand you know the property situation um, and also is prepared to to explain things to you so you fully understand be very careful about an accountant that encourages you to buy the sort of property that you get the maximum depreciation and tax benefits out of because that is a danger zone that's not necessarily a good property decision. Mm. It might be a good tax decision, but it's not necessarily a good property decision. And, and that's really what we're about here is making sure that you buy the right asset, but are aware of all of the risks, traps and opportunities that there might be in, in how you structure that. And, and a big one, Veronica, and we haven't even touched on that is whose name should it be in? Yeah. Because that can't be changed. Once you've purchased a property, um, you need to know whose name it should be in if you're going to maximise um, deductions and, and, and benefits from um, having an investment property. Uh, you can't change that unless you pay extra stamp duty if you want to change entities. So that's really important. It may be better in one person's name. It may be better in two people's names. Maybe it should be in a trust. You know, they, they, these are questions we can't answer. We can simply, I guess, alert you to the discussions that you need to have with an accountant and the things you need to think about before you actually go and see the accountant about what you might want to do if you're going to rent best. Absolutely right. Now, uh, sort of talking about the the sorts of properties that you get the most tax benefits out of and they are brand new properties okay if you have tuned into anything that we have said before you will know that we ex we ex 
encourage exercise, encourage you to exercise <laughs> grave caution when it comes to buying brand new because as first home buyers, the government is, all governments, state and federal, are very, very uh, enthusiastic in their encouragement of you buying brand new or off the plan because that's good for the economy, right? It's not always the construction industry. That's it. But it's not necessarily good for you, the first home buyer. So, you know, we've done, we've written blogs on this. We've, there's lots of material we've done. We're not going to labor the point why now. And if you want to know why, then I encourage you to do the course and then you'll learn why. <laughs> um, you'll also find some free resources and blogs on the, the website as absolutely. well. So. There, in there. fact, there is a blog on that very reason, mm. uh, very topic. But there's lots, and lots of risks of buying uh, brand new, and, and losing money is probably the greatest risk, and and a well documented risk as well. And so the thing is that if you buy for for those tax benefits, and if you buy for the grants, and you buy, you know, you can you can what feels like get a lot of money back from the government by buying these sorts of properties. Um, and, and add to that, you might get rental guarantees offered by developers and it seems so compelling, mm. uh, but it's a very, very dangerous trap because your rent vesting, that vesting bit of the word, is investing. And in order to invest, the, your money needs to become worth more over time. The asset needs, needs to become to work worth for more. You. Yes, mm. otherwise don't bother doing it. <laughs> Just stay renting and spend all your money. Might as well. <laughs> <laughs> there may be a lower risk asset uh, class that you can look at. Yeah, um, totally. So but, you know, property is certainly for the long term and we harp on that over and over and over again and selecting an investment grade asset if you're going to rent first absolutely categorically has to be the primary focus, not somewhere that you want to live or, or a location that you want to live in. Now, we've got an episode coming up in a few weeks on investment fundamentals uh, and so just keep your ear out for that one. But also I just want to touch on a couple of things in rent vesting. One is that so some people might just buy the property that they always intend to be an investment and they stay renting and they they intend to keep it um, for the long term, which is great because property is for the long term. But they have an intention in their mind to actually buy their home to live in at some point. So you do need to plan for that because you need to be aware that you are going to be able to sustain another mortgage. And maybe that's because you're currently single and you think I'm going to pair up with someone and that's, you know, and that's potential that way. Maybe you're on a career trajectory and you've got some some big, uh, you know, pay rises in the future or whatever, you have to do, you have to think if that's your plan that I do actually want to buy my own home, I don't want to stay renting and I don't intend to sell that first one, then you do have to have a bit of a plan in place and be pretty clear that that's a very good possibility that you'll be able to afford what you want down the track because otherwise by rent vesting, and this is one of the, the dangers of it, when people get into the market too quickly, so they get in as soon as they can afford to buy something and they say, look, you know, I just want to get in and I'll buy the, as soon as I can buy something and it's small, but it becomes a noose around your neck or an anchor tied to your foot basically down the track and you realise that you can't actually get leverage that, you can't actually make enough money out of that by selling it or you can't borrow against it, it basically becomes a problem for you that you have to get rid of before you can buy the home that you want. And so you've got to be very careful you don't get trapped like that. Yeah, you need to need to know your timeframes too, Veronica, because if you have plans to just live in it for a year, then rent it out and then buy another property, you've got to really understand what your equity position would be by then. And, and nobody has a crystal ball to say the market's going to go up by X percent or because it has done this in the last 
two years, it's going to do that in the future. Mm. Um, so if you're relying purely on equity gain in a short period of time because the market's having a, a, a good solid run, um, you want to have maybe plan B around that. Uh, and then from a servicing point of view, I'd be having a, a chat with your broker when you're doing your your borrowing capacity for the first property, have a chat with the broker around, well, if I was to buy a second property and, you know, using some assumptions, my income had gone up by X or I'd got some bonuses or I had this amount of equity, um, how much would I then be able to borrow? Because having those discussions now is going to get you in the right frame of mind and thinking, well, what do I need to change if I do want to buy a home in two, three, four years' time? How do I prepare for that and get myself in the possession best position to do that and is buying this property now the best decision that I can make for that long-term plan yeah and then there's the other real long-term planner who says right well I'm going to buy the house that I want to raise my children in now and it's a bit like the same it's like the downsizer it's like the person saying right well I'm going to I'm going to retire in 10 years it's the other end of the spectrum here I'm going to retire in 10 years and I'm going to move to the country or to the beach or whatever I'm moving out of out of the city and I'm going to buy now for where I'm going to live in 10 years time well you need to have a pretty good crystal ball to be a hundred percent certain that you are going to want the same thing in 10 years that you want now and, Absolutely. and that's always the scary thing we're buying your future home well in advance of when you need it. And there's things that you can't anticipate. So, so those retirees that think they're going to have a sea change and they move out of the city and their kids stay working in the city and become <laughs> adults and have children Suddenly there's grandchildren that want you want to be visiting you know, much more often mm. than you ever anticipated that you would. Um, and and when, you're, when you're single or when you're a couple before you have children, you don't really put a lot of thought into, well, what school would they go to? What sort of community do I want, want to be involved in? Um, and, and those are the sorts of things if you are looking to the future and you're buying property now for the future, you got to really think through questions that you couldn't have even anticipated that you would <laughs> you would need to answer. That's the problem. You don't know what you don't know, and then you don't even know that you're getting worried about stuff like that. But there are some older first home buyers, and that's the reason. Mm. You know, these are people not old enough to be our mums. They're probably old enough to be our sisters and brothers, and you know, and they um, often, you know, talk to to that generation of first home buyers is thinking about, well, I'm going to buy my retirement plan now and I think that is a danger for them to be thinking about doing that you want to they want to be really really certain that that's the right thing for them and that's really where they want to be Absolutely. Well, yeah. I think um, I think we've at least covered a lot of the rent vesting sort of pros and cons. But the other thing that you can do if you can't afford to buy where you want to live is maybe look at a parental guarantor. Tell mm-hmm. us a bit more about that. So this is really where, and look, mostly it's parents that help out here, but sometimes it might be an uncle or an auntie or even sometimes a grandparent. Mm. And that is where somebody that already owns their house and typically outright or they own a lot of equity in their own home, they can actually let you get access to that equity instead of a deposit or instead of part of the deposit. So what that means is that say you've saved up 5% and your parents have got, you know, good equity, they own own their own home and you went to the broker and the broker says something like, well, okay, well, you could use your 5% um, 
And in order to avoid paying lenders mortgage insurance, if your parents weren't guarantor for you, and that means that gives the bank security against the loan, then you what you can borrow less than, you know, less than 80% and not have to pay lenders mortgage insurance. So there's a definite plus for people who can avoid that additional cost and be able to get into the market sooner, assuming that they have the income and the capacity to fund the mortgage, right, to pay that mortgage. And it's the whole 95%. It's not that they're only paying the mortgage on the 80%. It's just Mm. the equity that they're using from the parental guarantor, the guarantor. You're still paying the repayments on the 95% if you've only got a 5% deposit. Absolutely. But in fact, you've got to remember there's other costs. So if you buy an established property, you've got to pay stamp duty and other bits and pieces, right? So generally, like if you're talking to an investor who's doing something like this, you would, they'd be borrowing 105% of the cost of the property because they'd be borrowing the additional costs as well, the purchasing costs, right? So this is a way that some buyers do get onto the property ladder with no deposit. And, and that is because their parents, well, basically they've got the equivalent of at least 25% of the, the value of the property that you want to buy in equity in their home. And so they go along to the broker with you and put in all the paperwork and stuff. So it sounds compelling. It sounds like, well, why wouldn't I do it? <laughs> so there are some cons. There's, you know, the, the pros are obvious. You know, you can get into the market quicker um, and you can avoid paying lenders mortgage insurance. Totally. Great so that could be that could be an eight, ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars saving yeah. if you're not paying lenders mortgage insurance. But let's talk about those cons. risks, the cons, the things that might go wrong. Well, um, what if your parents aren't that well off? All they've got is their house, and then something happens to you and your ability to repay the mortgage, or something happens at IAU by, God forbid, you, you listen to this podcast, hopefully you're going to do your first home buyer guide course, you will not buy a bad asset. But what if you did buy a bad asset that went backwards? And the bank said, right, you now need to actually stump up some extra cash so you can stay above the, uh, the uh, loan to value ratio. I mean, these things do happen, right? Um, say you got divorced, like... Say, you know, you've got, well, what if your siblings get a bit peeved? Because like, well, hang on, mum and dad just helped you and there's no equity left in their house to help me. So the pressure. Well, I bought that property on my own and I didn't have to go to mum and dad for, the, yeah. for, for yeah, any help. Yeah, I didn't get a leg up. Where's, <laughs> where's my early access to the inheritance? Yes. So it can create problems. And if you don't have agreements in place, you know, potentially the parents might be thinking, well, you're going to squirrel down and you're going to spend you know, all your all your extra, extra cash flow you're going to use to pay down that debt as quickly as possible so you get um, above that 80% threshold so that you can release them and release the uh, hold on their property. Um, but if you don't do that, they might start having judgment calls about you taking a holiday. Mm. You know, I mean, you can imagine Spending too Christmas. much money, having too nice a car, yeah. um, changing jobs. You know, there, there can be a real unintended consequence with, with people being involved with each other when money comes into play. Uh, the, the other thing, Veronica, that can happen is the parents might want to buy another property. They mm. may be on still on an accumula- accumulation phase. Well, they in want their to downsize or upsize themselves. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So if they've got 20, 15, 15% of their um, equity tied up as as um, part of a guarantor situation for a child or sibling, whatever the case may be, um, they, they may actually not be able to release that mortgage. Mm. So the bank may well say, 
No, unless you can stump up for the the fifteen percent um, to release it, we're not going to re- we're not going to allow you to sell the property. So they can get caught up a little bit in in um, an unintended consequence of not being able to sell their own home unless they can get access to funds. Yeah. So look, you do um, need to get legal advice. In fact, you can't do it without getting legal advice, but you also need to have formal agreements in place, you know, over and above that so that you can address all possible scenarios. We also will pop some links in the show notes of this particular episode because we've got some blogs with more information on all of these um, topics that we're talking about so that, you know, if you want to get further information and look into it deeper, then we encourage you to do so. So Megan, what's our third possible scenario? Well, this is actually one that I did. Uh, This this is what I did with my first property and that was co-ownership. And co-ownership involves um, getting together with a friend, sibling, colleague, um, partner, you know, somebody who you obviously have some sort of a relationship with and, um, and actually pooling, <laughs> <laughs> pooling your resources in order to buy a better property. Um, and it might be one that you live in together or it might be one that you um, rent best in uh, together but it's it's having more than one person who aren't necessarily you know are in a relationship together in a in a um, romantic relationship together or or de facto relationship marriage whatever the case may be um and and pulling those resources together now in this case often those combined resources can get you a better asset um it might be bigger it might be in a better location um and if you are on the same page and this involves a lot of communication a lot Mm. of communication has to take place in order for this to be successful and to mitigate the risks that are associated with it but if you're on the same page and you're in a similar financial position and a similar life stage then it can actually be really successful and this is what my brother and i did So my first property, I was out of uni for about 18 months, um, desperate to get on the the property ladder, had uh, mum and dad had had instilled in both my brother and I this um, understanding about how property can be an asset and can help you in life. And uh, and so we we sat down, the four of us, and had a chat and worked out that uh, we, we could pull our resources, we could buy a property, I could renovate it. Um, what we had to do is is work through a whole lot of what ifs. Mm-hmm. What if my brother lost his job? What if I found a partner? What if, you know, uh, he wanted to buy another property? What if mum and dad needed, um, well, they weren't really involved, they were just helping. <laughs> uh, but you <laughs> There was all what if one of us dies, you know, and there's, you know, some of the conversations are really a bit confronting to have when you're 23, but, uh, but good ones to, to, to work through. And, and then even just, you know, doing up wills, you need to have really good wills in place mm. when you have a co-owner, when you own any property, but certainly when you have co-ownership situations. Um, so that, that, that worked for us. Um, and one of the what ifs was I got transfer, I got a job transfer and promotion to Melbourne. So that was me selling out and him buying me out. And that was one of the scenarios that we had worked through and worked out what we would do if that was the case. Um, so lots of different scenarios. Yeah. And that's a classic scenario because if one person buys the other person out, you have to agree in advance on how you're going to mm-hmm. value it at the time. Yep. So what did you do? We had two valuations. So we each ordered a, an independent valuation. Um, we did have an agent have a look at it, but uh, it, that was the decision that we had made was two valuations and we took the average of it. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's always important to have those conversations and work out your methodology before it's emotional. 
Because <laughs> you can think a lot clearer, you know, be a lot calmer about the actual agreeing on things at that Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Uh, yep. But the other thing too is that so, you know, if you're going to live in it, you have to see, you'd have to sort of go through the scenarios of, well, okay, what if I partner up and I want to move out or mm. what if you want to move out and then do I get veto over the person that moves in as a tenant? And mm. and there's, so there's all these sorts of um, um, different variations on, on a theme that you would apply when you're looking at buying with somebody else. The other thing too, and I'm presume it's the same in Queensland and, and this is the one thing you find throughout your first home buyer guide as well that there are differences on nearly so everything many differences. across the country because of legislation and so we will do an episode two on some of the main differences state to state mm. and territory to territory but um, in New South Wales for instance on the contract to sale there's there's the defaults to if two people are buying a property it defaults to equal ownership mm. and the it's tenants in common or joint tenants and tenancy common basically means, now correct me if I'm wrong because I always get this swapped up. I have to look at a contract to remind myself, I second guess myself. But tenancy <laughs> common basically means that, at, you know, say you're a married couple and one of you dies, the other one automatically gets their share of the property. Other way around, Veronica. The other way around? Joint tenancy. <laughs> you sure? One way or the other. Get yeah, legal advice. Yeah, joint tenancy is equal. So if one dies, then ownership transfers to the other. Tenants in common is holding shares that might be unequal and each party can dispose of those of their shares and death does not extinguish their share. So thank you for clarifying that, which is exactly why you need to have a good buyer's agent on your side like Megan or get a good lawyer. But the thing is to be aware of this because obviously if your tenant's in common, got that right, yep, you, you can have 50-50 still. It could you still can. be 50 50 split, um, mm. or it could be 40 60, or it could be 199 if you want to do it that way. I yep. mean, but the thing is that, yes, part of your agreement has to be what happens in the event such that that happens, you know? So then. And that has to match your will. Yes. It has to match your will to be, to be legally binding. Otherwise, it goes into your estate, and then yep. whatever the you know, hopefully you've mm -hmm. got a will and, and, and it gets very messy. So these are the things that, that, that have to be sorted through. But I, what I see and what, what we hear about is the most common issues is that because people when they're buying uh, for their first home tend to be sort of in their, their formative years of adulthood and so therefore the world's your oyster, there's so many changes that are ahead and so many opportunities going to come up and you don't really foresee or know whether you're going to go overseas or interstate or whether you're going to get married or whether you're going to have kids or whatever you're going to do. You don't have to get married to have kids. I just want to keep reiterating that, by the way. Um, <laughs> don't feel because I say this all the time that I wasn't married you know, just a little personal bit. But anyway, that's, I digress. No judgment. I, no judgment. No judgment. <laughs> um, you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what your choices are going to be. You don't know all this stuff. And so, of course, you start off with all good faith and good intentions yeah. and you're both at the same stage Very exciting. it's fun. Mm. Hey, heaps of it fun. Is. No. Very exciting. It's thrill. It's absolutely thrilling to find that first property and and, and go through the process and, and get it all settled and move in. Well, move in if you're moving in. but Until it's not fun. In. Until it's not fun. Until it's not fun. Until all of a and sudden it's really in your fun. way. You want to do something else. And it's in your way or that agreement's in your way or, or you're in mm. someone else's way. And so that these are the things that obviously need to be nutted out. But, but back to that pro, if you are on the same page and you are at a similar stage and you're really clear on all your exit strategies and what you're prepared to do, then, yes, you can leverage up potentially into better quality mm. property and it will grow in value better than a, 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 a lesser quality property. Um, yeah, 
there's some great opportunity in the co-ownership space. Good opportunities. It's just about managing your risks and, and, and having a very, very strong line of communication. So getting that those discussions had, getting them written down and agreed upon and signed off, getting the ownership structure right is vitally important because, as you say, you could have 1% and 99%. You can have 50-50 um, if one person's putting more in. Now, the other thing, actually, Veronica, that we didn't mention, it's just popped into my mind, is if you purchase a property with another person and you go to buy another property, the bank will actually assess your borrowing capacity and use uh, the the property that you already own, they will assess you as a hundred percent, as if you were a hundred percent owner. I've wow. not said I haven't articulated that well. If, so it, it, so it even if you're a 50, 50, that yeah, you mm. they they look at your ability to pay a hundred percent of that existing loan. Um, so each party is assessed that way. Wow. Not, not the 50% that you own. So it does actually affect your borrowing capacity moving forward if you go into a co-ownership agreement with someone. Very interesting. And another thing I just thought of as well is that if you are buy- buying in a split that's not 50-50, then you're going to have to work through what how you share the costs. Mm. And if you are going to be rent, if you're both going to live in it, you probably need to negotiate some sort of rent offset as well, because the person who only owns 30%, um, you know, really should pay something a bit extra to the person who owns 70%. Mm. And how are you going to work that out? So these are, these are all the complications and not, not insurmountable, but absolutely that communication as Megan was saying, and a co-ownership agreement Mm. in writing. Right. Well, in this episode, we've covered just a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-home buyers. And if you'd like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to the website, which is homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review, five stars. We very much appreciate it. It will help others find us as well. And thanks for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. If you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.